Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. Jim Henson here. Uh, We are here to talk a little bit about politics in Texas, uh, things going on this week. I'm joined by Josh Blank again. How are we this morning, Josh? We are excellent. I'm wondering right now, maybe we wondered this last week, but I don't think so, if the warm-up to the podcast of all the quotes get the audience as ready as I think it gets us. Gets me pumped. We've heard it now a a million times, and I think we both still sit here and laugh and cringe at different parts. Yeah, we won't tell you which ones. (laughs) No, no, no. That'd be too much of a giveaway. Um, We've been following the special session, which is the main Texas storyline this summer. As As we record this on Wednesday... We are just at the halfway mark. I guess that makes this day 16 of the special session. Uh, So that's been acknowledged by by in all the inside stories about where we are. And so that means we should we should look at the scorecard on the 20 items. So where are we, Josh? So so far, the Senate has passed 20 items or 20 bills on 18 of the governor's 20 items. Okay, and the House has passed eight bills on four of his items. And those are the items on the governor's, you know, special two calls call. for the special session right. and call. So how do we think the 20 for 20 strategy looks now? That's been the the, the subject of a lot yeah. of debate. I mean, we talked about that, I think, in the very first podcast this semester. I think semester. Ross and I talked about it a little bit. I mean, it's sort of been... I don't been, think you and Ross talked about anything a little bit. You talked about everything a lot. Ross talked about a lot of things. <laughs> I talked about a little th- a bit of things. But anyway, he was a guest and he's very knowledgeable. So we should talk about a lot of things. But the theme kind of you know, at least going through so far, at least for us on the, the politics side of this, there's sort of, there's all the policy stuff and not to, you know, shortchange that, but there's the politics of this and sort of the notion of, you know, uh, Abbott's push for 20 for 20. And as you know, if you've been listening to this regularly, you see, we've been trying to kind of assess that strategy. Is it a good idea? Is it a bad idea? Before he came out 20 for 20, we were kind of wondering what were the measure for success? And then he was very clear 20 for 20. But as time has moved on, I think, you know, we sort of evolved in in how we've been thinking about it as the context has changed and his sort of actions have maybe revealed some of the underlying preferences a little bit better. The underlying preferences of the legislators. Well, the underlying preferences of all the actors. Of all the the actors. Yeah, you know, of Abbott, of Patrick, you know, of of Strauss, and then of of the body, at least especially in the House, right? I think we might have thought about this a little bit differently, and I, I may have been reading you wrong in our discussions on this, but... You know, I never thought the 20 for 20 strategy was all that bad because I never really thought that the governor himself would be held accountable to it. I, You know, I mean, it seemed to set the bar high knowing full well that the legislature probably wasn't very likely mm-hmm. to pass all 20 of the, measure, of the measures. But for me, I think what we'll see is that the governor, they won't get 20 mm-hmm. um, and the governor will take credit for the successes and blame the legislature for the absences. I think yeah. that's, and, and think, it's certainly looking more and more like that. Yeah, and I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, uh, I think, you know, you're right. We probably did view it a little bit differently. Part of it is, I think I would come at it and say- I was thinking that I was right and you were wrong. Uh, well, sure, of course. Yes, boss. <laughs> of course. 
let me let me talk about how I'm wrong. Uh, you know, I mean, I think coming into it, part of my thinking is is that part of it is the expectations versus reality for the public. I mean, for us sort right. of sitting here in Austin, who the people who follow this really closely, it's really easy to kind of game this out in a way where, you know, not achieving 20 items is fine. And I think that in the end, it's probably going to work out fine for him. Right. Having said that, you know, most most people, you know, most American citizens who have, you know, some sort of faint understanding of government or, you know, at least a limited understanding, tend to look at the executives as all powerful, right? They look at the president as sort of being responsible for the success and failure of the economy, which is clearly not really true most of the time. Right. And they look at the governors in a similar way. And even in Texas, where the governor is you know, particularly weak in terms of the powers he's actually constant, constitutionally given, there's still a sense to say, you know, the governor is the one leading leading the government. Now, you have the whole spe- you know, the whole regular session where the governor has very little powers and was very quiet. But the special session, you know, the you know, governor Abbott made a really, you know, compelling case for this being his special session. Well, he and made so, a well, he made a bold play anyway. He made a bold play anyway. I mean, but that's the point though. I mean, part of this is not about, you know, whether you know, I mean, who decides who wins or loses and that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, that's kind of just it, there's no way to really say with any certainty who's the winner and who's the loser of the these people things. People do it all the time. I think we'll do it soon actually. We'll write something. But anyway, we get to do that. But the thing is is that I think part of the thing that I was thinking was, you know, making such a bold play early saying 20 for 20, that combined with people's expectations about, you know, what they think a governor can do and then not achieving it, I think, does have some cost. Now, I think what's what's becoming clear is it's going to have a lot less cost to him than maybe one might have initially thought. But that's partially because I think we sort of have a, a more nuanced understanding of what the strategy was behind that now. Right. I mean, I think the point here and that enables me to joke about, you know, one of us being right and one of us being wrong and the, and the real and the more serious point here is... These political gestures take place in conditions of limited information mm-hmm. and a lot of uncertainty. Right. You know, this, this is a very it's a very human process with a lot of contingent parts, and good political actors are actually very good at adjusting to changing circumstances. Or successful political actors, and we've seen a lot of that here. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I think has been a, a bit consistent here. And that did, you know, lead me to think early on that that the governor had a lot of wiggle room here is in part what you're talking about, this idea that the governor is the figurehead of state government, has a lot of symbolic association. Greg Abbott himself and his specific circumstances that he is, as we've said here, very popular among his base and among Republicans. And, there's and, a, and even reasonably popular among some Democrats. Right. I mean, and, then, and then there's and there's conflict between the branches here. And in that conflict between the governor with all with all of his assets and the legislature, was, which is divided against itself uh, in terms of the, the friction between the House and the Senate right. and the cross currents in the Republic in, among the Republican caucuses um, was in a, a less you know, a less uh, powerful position in terms of how the public digests all this. Yeah, I think what I probably underestimated was the degree to which the acrimony that was going on during the regular session would carry over and maybe increase going into the special session and the degree to which that becomes the ready-made sort of, you know, cause for the dysfunction. It's not the fact that the governor isn't able to pass his agenda. It's that, you know, the legislature is being dysfunctional and they're continuing to be dysfunctional. And they're, and they're, and, you know, 
thanks, I think, in large part to the public poses of the leadership in each of, in each of the chambers, Lieutenant Governor Patrick and Speaker Strauss, that acrimony remains a consistent theme. Now, each of them projects that acrimony in different ways. Strauss is in a much quieter, more, you know, some people have said passive-aggressive. I don't think that's quite right way. Um, and, and Lieutenant Governor Patrick, obviously much more public. He's a statewide official. We've talked about that here. You know, Lieutenant Governor Patrick has a statewide audience, electoral audience at all time because he's elected statewide. The speaker is not. The House is different. It's made up of much smaller, more specific constituencies. It's managed in a different way. So if we step back, what does all that mean? It means that, you know, the Senate predictably has passed many more bills than the House, given their positions and their positions vis-a-vis -vis the governor. The House says that there will have a lot of committee hearings. There'll be more happening in the House. But our, our expectation is that the House will be much less accommodating to the governor's agenda than, than was the Senate. Right. And just to put a, you know, a fine point on the end of this, I mean, you know, part of the reason that the Senate has passed so many bills is because the agenda that, you know, Greg Abbott, and this is sort of going back to this 21st strategy, the agenda that Abbott laid out for the special session was basically Dan Patrick's agenda for the regular session. I mean, to some degree, or at least a lot of those yeah, priorities. Not the trees. Not the trees. That's his own thing. But but most of the but most of the priority bills for Patrick that did not pass were bills that Abbott took up for the special session. And he wasn't doing yeah. it in a way that said, hey, you know, the lieutenant governor had a bunch of great ideas, and I think we should do that. He said, no, this is my agenda this, for the special session. This is the conservative agenda which I am promoting. Right. And the reason that you should understand why this is important is because really given, you know, how much money Greg Abbott has in the bank, his popularity with Republicans, really the only person conceivable who could be a threat to Greg Abbott is Dan Patrick. And this makes it very hard for Dan Patrick to be a threat. Right. And so in the end, if you say, you know, what does Greg Abbott achieve out of this? He basically neutralizes the only threat, you know, that he faces, you know, in any sort of reasonable time proximity in Dan Patrick, because Dan Patrick can't say the only, I mean, you've made this argument before, at least to me, and we'll lay it out here, which is that, you know, the only argument for Dan Patrick running for governor, which he said over and over again that he won't, and Ross Rambius, he would say, well, he said he wasn't going to run for the Senate. He said he wasn't going to run for lieutenant governor. So that's why we don't take that fully at face value. But the only argument he could make for running would be to say, well, you know, the governor has abandoned us on conservative principles. Well, now that's impossible to say. Right. And so, you know, basically in a way, you know, Abbott had by going by, you know, laying out this sort of ambitious agenda, which was Patrick's, by saying 20 for 20 and then kind of letting the chips fall where they may, which increasingly seems like he's going to. He's right. been a little bit more, you know, I think probably positive towards what the House has done, even though they haven't done much yet. I mean, it seems like there's a pretty good chance that we leave at the end of the 30 days and we don't have another special session, no matter how many bills are passed or aren't. But he basically was able to both pull Dan Patrick closer to him and also discard him at the same time and say, well, that's just the legislature being dysfunctional. Right. And it was a, it was a, it was a you know, I thought at the time it was a pretty, it was a pretty political shrewd, shrewd, shrewd move, and I don't, you know, I, and I think it, it cut off a lot of negative thing, a lot of negative discussion toward the governor in the press pretty effectively. Lest we, lest we dwell too much on on Patrick and and the governor or the separation of powers, we also want to notice at least briefly the latest episode in the Dan Patrick Joe Strauss. Uh, contention and that is Dan Patrick went on a, a podcast that only goes to the group to the members or at least ostensibly to the members of a or is focused on the members of a conservative kind of dissident group that has been very anti-Strauss and very active and very active and has helped support uh, not 
with only mixed success, uh, candidates that are opposed to Strauss. And basically, so Dan Patrick went on this podcast, which of course got covered by every political reporter in town, and complained about how, you know, he sort of sort of talked. We shouldn't say I won't put it that way, but you know, took two different tacks. One saying that he was more than willing to work with the House and that you know trying to soft sell some of his earlier criticism, but also said as he has before that he just wishes the Speaker would talk to him. That the Speaker won't meet with him. The Speaker isn't communicating. It seems to him that the leadership should always be cooperating on the agenda. And why aren't they? There's a certain amount of. Uh, you know, I'm shocked, shocked that gambling is going on here in terms of the classic Casablanca reference that, you know, the, the lieutenant governor would be complaining about sectarian politics. Because pretty clearly, as you and I were talking before this, the speaker himself has said, if we're going to talk and really talk about things and try to figure out a way to to work together, that would be great. But he doesn't expect that that's going to happen. And he's not going to meet and have the message delivered in person that the bathroom bill is the most important thing that they should be doing because Strauss has been clear he doesn't believe that. Right. And he's also been clear that he's just not going to go to a meeting where that's what the agenda is. Right. So um, so you may, you guys may hear something about that, but that that is still going on. A couple of, uh, uh, at least one more sort of substantive policy thing to touch on. The House voted yesterday to uh, on the floor and passed a funding bill for the Texas retirement system. Now, during the regular session... Teacher retirement system. Or, I'm sorry, yes, the teacher retirement system. Thanks. But the teacher um, retirement system actually covers like a lot of state employees. Right, it's not but, just teachers. But mainly, mainly retired teachers, teachers and yeah. educational it's administrators. A lot of people, and it's very big. They voted, and they voted to change the rules during the regular session in ways that would have vastly increased premiums and deductibles. Now... Most of you probably don't have to mess with this very much, but you know premiums are what you what you pay to buy the insurance on a monthly basis. Usually, deductibles are what you pay out of pocket when you go to get a service. These are the two measures because they're what come out of people's paychecks and and out of their bank accounts. So by raising the premiums and the deductibles, they really significantly increase the costs for a lot of these retirees. With these rules changes, there were discussions about putting more money to help offset some of these during the regular session that really didn't work. So both chambers are revisiting this. It's it's on the call. It's on the governor's call. This is one of those kind of more policy-oriented things on the call rather than something that's ideological, to be fair to the governor. This is something that was left. But it also plays into this is something the legislature shouldn't have done but did. The House passed a bill yesterday that would have tapped what we colloquially call the rainy day fund. Formerly, it's the economic stable, it's the emergency stabilization fund or economic stabilization fund, the ESF. I think it still is that. This right? is a, I mean, yeah, this is a fund that is basically uh, fed by royal by revenues from oil and gas taxes in the state. By statute, a certain amount of money goes into it. You know, depending on the level of income, there's some there's a formula that kind there's of there's a maximum this. the fund should get to, but it's usually it's usually floating around ten to twelve billion dollars. Right, and right now it's at about eleven. It's at eleven and point two, I think, billion dollars. Um, they want to tap that fund in the house to pay for a payment to kind of offset this retirement system. Uh, that the the Senate has been reluctant to do that, and they. They passed a bill in the same amount that would have done some accounting work with Medicaid insurance funds. Um, so th this is kind of a this has been one of these differences between the House and the Senate that is 
really out there in the weeds, which you must be thinking right now, but really kind of underlines one of these fundamental points of friction in which the Senate does not want to tap this rainy day fund unless they say it's it's a real emergency and it's a one-time expenditure. The House has been much more willing, I would say, to define the nature of one-time and emergency a little more broadly. This is an example of that. Yeah, this has been, I mean, this is sort of, I mean, you may, as you said, you know, this this may feel really in the weeds, but this has actually been a consistent point of contention during a regular session, during the regular session in which, which is continuing, in which funds were tight, right? The budget was, you know, the, the amount of money available this session was less than the last session. So the fact is there were going to be cuts, there were going to be hard choices to make, and then the question becomes, okay, well, if there's some things that we can't cut, but we need to find money for, how do we find it? And the House basically has said, well... The rainy day fund is there for economic stabilization. And the Senate has basically taken the approach, and I should say conservatives in the Senate, not, you know, has basically taken the approach that, as you said, the rainy day fund is only for one-time expenses. So most of the way that they've managed to try to fund things, and this could go from school finance fixes, uh, you know, to, again, teacher retirement system, has basically been to either do one of two things. In the case of school finance in the special session, basically move money around within education, so not actually find new money, or the other sort of most popular way to do this is to basically adjust the funding formulas for Medicaid in one way or another, or basically or either, just either delay payments. or delay payment, which is yeah. common. I mean, just so you guys all know, I mean, basically the first thing the legislature does when it comes back to town for a legislative session is figure out how much it owes to Medicaid and and pay that back in a supplemental budget because they're always delaying payments to Medicaid to pay for something else. And it's usually in the in the nature of you know at least a billion dollars. Sometimes it's been closer to two. Right, and so you know. <laughs> it's hard, you know, if you're looking at this, you know, with a with an objective eye, it's hard to say, you know, exactly which is the more conservative approach. You right. know, I mean, I think the Senate is very clear about saying the tapping the rainy day fund for what is, you know, seen as continuing expenses is not conservative. It's kind of like dipping into your, you know, savings account to pay for cable is what they would argue. Right. right. And, this, and this was a big fight during the regular session. And as you know, it seemed to me it was predictable. They basically split the difference. The Senate went in saying they w- didn't want to touch the the rainy day fund at all. Then they kind of slowly let in a little bit of light that for one-time expenses, it would be okay. Um, the House wanted to tap it, you know, at various times, anywhere between 2 and $4 billion. They wound up settling on tapping it for about a billion Uh, in the final settlement. So the way to look at this is two things. One, teacher retirement is something that the legislators are very careful with because it does hit on on teachers, even though they have cut, they're still going to have some cuts in the benefits. Um, But the second thing is that the House doing this is definitely, you know, a shot fired across the bow of the Senate uh, that they want to go back to the rainy day fund. And and what's, I mean, what's, I don't know. Like, I guess is I don't know if nice is the right word, but what's nice about this sort of this thing is that it does illustrate the fact that, you know, this isn't, you know, the tensions that's going on between the House and the Senate aren't just about ends. They're also about means. I mean, right. it's more it's more complicated than just about, you know, what they are or aren't going to pass on sort of social issues. It's actually about, you know, how they're going to do things that they actually agree on. So, I mean, these these disagreements run pretty deep. Yeah. And this is, you know, and, and these kinds of financial disagreements are fed by a baseline consensus in the majority party in both houses that they're not going to raise taxes and they're not going to go and do anything that create other sources of new revenue for government. So they're, they've been caught every session in the last decade, if not a little bit more, 
trying to figure out how they're going to make ends meet without using the main tools that government has, which is, right. which are various forms of taxation. Um, we'll close today on one more, uh, a kind of interesting bit of politics that goes to the, the topic that I guess we can't, nobody that talks about Texas politics right now yeah. can do anything without mentioning bathroom legislation, transgender people access to bathrooms, um, and how that's playing out this center. It's a, it's been a, it, this session, it's been a, uh, a matter of statewide attention and focus, obviously, and it's getting lots of national attention. The latest episode in that was, was fairly interesting in that, uh, a letter was issued that was signed by numerous members in the oil and gas industry. Came out in, of Houston. Inclu- yeah, came out of Houston, but including uh, the heads of some of the biggest oil companies that operate in the state, ExxonMobil, Shell, Shell British Petroleum, BP, um, in which they urged uh, the governor and the legislature... Lieutenant governor. I think the letters were to the governor and the lieutenant governor. To not pass a... You know, to, to be wary of passing any bills that are seen as discriminatory because it's not good for the business climate in the state. Right. It makes it hard to recruit talent was the main argument right. they had. And so this moves the ball forward in an interesting way. I mean, and there's been an extended discussion uh, in Texas and, and in the national press about the degree to which the business interests that live primarily in the Republican Party in the state or aligned with the Republican Party in the state, were willing to expend some of their political capital to oppose, you know, quote-unquote, bathroom legislation. There have been some high-profile opposition from some of the sports organizations, I guess notably the NFL and the NBA. Yeah. Uh, the NCAA was involved in terms of the location of the tournament, particularly when this kind of legislation came up in North Carolina. Their participation had been a little bit more muted in Texas. Right. Um, one of the the big, but not the only kind of umbrella organization, business organizations in the state, the Texas Association of Business, had kind of taken the point on opposing SB6 and bathroom legislation during the regular session, and it had kind of a rocky time of it. They promoted a report that had been done at another by some students as a class project at another university, uh, whose name we won't mention, was St. Ed's, um, and got basically in trouble because the much of the data in that report was out of date. Some of it was inaccurate, but a lot of it was, was simply out of date, and they'd promoted this this anyway. But overall, there a lot of people, including the Speaker of the House, had been noticing that while there had been some proclamations, there really hadn't been a lot of money spent and a lot of effort made to really go to the wall on this. High-tech companies had been pretty involved in the opposition. Uh, again, as Josh was saying, uh, you know, on the basis of recruitment and to some degree their image with consumer markets, but by and by, Target was there too. I mean, so yeah. there. So I mean, I mean, the oppos- yeah, I mean, the business opposition was really, you know, in a lot of ways minimized to the Texas Association of Business and a lot, you know, and then additionally, sort of Target and some high tech brands, which is why sort of the introduction of you know more of a, a pillar of the Texas right. economy and business community yeah, so stepping the, in was sort of a big seen as a big deal. Right. The oil, I mean, the oil and gas industry and the heavy and the the more you know the, what we call that you know the heavy industrials, you know, mm-hmm. thing people like the Texas Association of Manufacturers had been much more muted on this, and you know it's led to a discussion of why this was so some misguided discussion. I think you know does this did it mean that the business 
community had lost power in the Republican Party because Dan Patrick was pursuing this overall. Was pursuing, was leading the fight on this in spite of business. A lot, a lot of people behind the scenes saying, you know, this isn't important to us, and in fact, we don't think it's a very good idea. So, oil and gas coming out really, a signaled a lot more willingness on, you know, one of these stalwarts of Republican business interests in the state coming out publicly against the bill, uh, and it has also re-raised these questions of the role in business. Yeah. Of the role of business. Right. And I mean, think, you know, yesterday this was kind of a big deal. And if you were to, if you go and Google it today, you'll see, you know, articles in the Washington Post and there's an AP article and there'll be something right. on, you know, sort of CNN and all the various national outlets as well as the local uh, press about this. And I mean, the initial reaction has been a little too simplistic, which is to say, you know, basically, well, oil and gas, you know, equals, you know, basically the main Republican funding mechanism. So therefore now they're in trouble. Right. You know, that's that's one way to look at it, but it would be it would be wrong, <laughs> you know, first of all. You know, I mean the question is does this does this change everything for, for Republicans? That's the question people are asking, or does this change the calculation? And the answer is, you know, not really. I mean, the fact is everybody who was lined up against this before oil and gas got involved is still lined up against it. Everybody who's for it is most likely going to still be for it. The only thing that this really probably does is, you know, maybe reinforce some of the resistance in the House, right? So the members, especially Republican members in the House who are not interested in this legislation, it gives them a little more cover to say, you know, now, you know, if, if Exxon and Shell are against this too, I mean, you know, this is getting to be right. ridiculous. You can't you can't point to this and say, well, it's really just this narrow slice of the business community. Yeah, a bunch, right? of, a bunch of pointy-headed, high-tech people that came from California, right. quote-unquote, is one thing when you're looking at the opposition of you know, Apple and and the high tech companies. It's another thing. You know, I mean, I, I still think it's probably, it changes the equation. I think it changes the equation a little bit more in the sense that, you know, yes, it, it gives the people that not only were opposed to it, but the people that don't want to vote on it mm-hmm. and want the economic argument to be taken more seriously, right. you know, a bit more to stand on. You know, and that's you know. A, I mean that I mean that's a good point. I mean, the key there is the people who don't want to vote on it. Right. Because this is the thing that, you know, I think is important to understand about interest group politics, right? I mean, it's very you know, I think when people think about the role of business and government, they imagine some guy walking up to a legislator with a briefcase full of, you know, cash and saying, you know, vote this way. Right. Do this thing for me and you know, and here you go. And really, you know, first of all, one, that's illegal. Two, you know, there's it, that. There's that. But two, you know, a lot of the time the influence that goes on between sort of powerful actors and politicians and, you know, sort of the political process is one, you know, extremely multifaceted and, and complex and has a lot of entry points. And two is usually a lot more subtle. And a lot of the times, you know, you can be you could be a legislator taking the position of, you know, let's say agreeing with, you know, the CEOs of ExxonMobil and, and you know, and Shell, et cetera. And all you really want to do is just not have a vote. Because you want to get reelected. Because you want to get reelected, and you support the idea of like let's just take let's just table this issue, this right. issue. And this is why it's sort of hard to actually sort of suss out the relationship between interest groups and government a lot of times. Because a lot of times, what's successful is, what's, is are the things that don't happen. Well, and there's and there's a lot of you know and there's a lot of conflict between you know different interest groups, and I think that that was really and 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 interest groups and the big business interest groups they have multifaceted agendas many of which are directly related to their bottom line and you know to my mind is you know i mean that that was kind of driving some of the business reticence during the regular session during the regular session where you have an open agenda 
you know, if you're a, you know, even the high tech companies, which were a little more raised their head above the hedge a little more on this issue than a lot, but, but the key had there. a lot of other issues that they were interested in, and they couldn't, you know, invest that knowing full well that the lieutenant, this was very important to the lieutenant governor, and the lieutenant governor has a lot of influence over what moves in the and in the key the distinction is again, you know, so the, the the first distinction is the fact that Exxon. And these, you know, sort of, again, more pillars of the Texas economy came out during the special session, but not the regular well, session. Well, that's, right. that's where I was going. But then going. the other piece of right. that, too, is the fact that people have been highlighting that during the regular session, when business opposition was registered, it was usually registered under the names of the businesses right. and not under the names of the CEOs of these businesses and specific individuals who are actually sort of, you know, the ones, you know, more active. Yeah, maybe. I mean... I think it, yeah. it, it is different. I mean, it does point out, you know, sort of the difference between saying, you know, this is something that my shareholders, you know, feel is important, and but, you know, we're okay versus saying, no, I actually personally am putting my name on this being a yeah. problem. You know, I mean... Well, I think we should go back to the special session point because that's what's mo- that, that's right. what we kind of want, you know. So basically, you know, these guys have a lot on the table during the unrestricted agenda struggle for the, you know, to shape the agenda and for legislation in the regular session. Right, regulator, regulatory policy, tax exactly. policy, et cetera. In the special session where you know there are only a certain number of things... And you're not having to balance trying to move other legislation, at least in the short term, you have a bit more leeway to, you know, perhaps at least in the short term, do something that that the leadership of one or one or both of the chambers of the parties don't like. And I think that's probably affecting the timing of, of the oil and gas, because clearly oil and gas, you know, we don't have to go into it, had other stuff on the agenda last time. They had a couple of, of big items that they were interested in. So, you know, the oil and gas coming out, I think, makes it that much, you know, and it, so if we then take that and look at where the bathroom bill or bathroom legislation is right now, it's been passed out of the Senate. It hasn't even had a committee hearing yet in the House. If it does, so it's going to be think, very late. So I think all things being equal, if you have to look at the this signaling that is sending a clear message from the oil and gas industry um, on where they are on this, and ask very simply, does that make it more likely or less likely that the bill moves more rapidly in the House? You can't guarantee less, but it certainly doesn't mean more. Yeah, I mean, the only reason, you know, yeah, right. I mean, the only reason you might not be sure that it was less would be because it wasn't going to move at all to begin with. Right, exactly. So it may not be decisive, but it but it certainly adds to, yeah. you know, the you know the 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 unwillingness of Chairman Byron Cook, who has lots of reasons to not move that bill. Um, who's and Byron Cook is the the chair of the State Affairs Committee in the House that that bill has been referred to. Um, so I, it's interesting to watch that though. And there's a good reason that that got a lot of national attention. I think, I think we're going to call it a, we're going to call it a week, covered a lot of ground and we'll be back next week. Follow the news and keep hitting those deadlines in the class. The second reading podcast is a production of the Texas politics project and the project 2021 development studio at the university of Texas at Austin. 